In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolaku, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Um, no studio callers today because we're on Instagram Live. I have to turn off the fan we have here. Good <laughs> um, to get right into the books of the week. Before I do, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thank you to everyone who joined the book club today for the book I'll talk about tonight. Um, it's been nice to do those and doing those every week. Speaking of the books, the book for this week is My Time Will Come by Ian Manuel. My Time Will Come, a memoir of crime, punishment, hope, and redemption by Ian Manuel. And I heard Ian Manuel speak. He was in jail for over, I think, two decades, but 18 years of which he was in solitary confinement. And so um, his story was heartbreaking but inspiring at the same time and so I just heard him speak for a few minutes but it made me want to get his book and read it and share it with you so look forward to reading this and um, talking about it next week my time will come by Ian Manuel the book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is noise by Daniel Kahneman Olivier Siboney and Cass Sunstein noise a flaw in human judgment and I mentioned this before, so Daniel Kahneman, you might know him from a lot of great work, including his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which is a classic in psychology written, I think, about a decade ago. Uh, I really enjoyed that book. And so when I heard he had a new book coming out, I wanted to make sure I got it. And this book just came out last week. So uh, you might not have heard of it yet because of that, but hopefully you'll check it out. Um, it is a interesting book. I was talking to my brother Parham. He's actually was reading it, listening to it as well. Definitely it's dry, but interesting at the same time, just that it's things that make you think a little bit more, but it is a little bit of a slow read, but I did enjoy reading it and I'm glad and I did, and, and I'll get into what the book is about. So, noise, a flaw in human judgment. And so it starts off the book talking about judgments, and judgment doesn't just mean what a judge does or um, something that has to be an official type of decision, but all type of decisions that we make, and that there's two types of errors or two classes of errors that we can discuss. One is bias, which we've heard a lot about, and that is like a systematic deviation, which I'll get into what that might mean. And the other is noise, which they bring up a few times throughout the book doesn't get as much attention. I'll share some of my thoughts about that as well. Why noise might not be getting the attention that um, bias does. They talk about it in the book, but I'll share some of my own thoughts. So bias, you've heard a lot about things like uh, implicit bias, thinking, looking at racism and certain decision making, or that there's a bias in the judicial system, let's say in the United States, where black Americans are more likely to get convicted of crime, more likely to get serious and longer sentences, even for the same types of crimes. So we can say there's a bias in the judicial system of the United States against 
black Americans. That would be bias. Noise is more this scattering that's less systematic, but can be even more pervasive in that, let's say, individual judges might have differences in how they apply the law or differences in how they sentence. For example, they share the research on asylum cases. So people sometimes, let's say, are coming to the United States. They say they're escaping their country or leaving their country, fleeing because they're not safe. And they say they need to come to the United States for asylum, essentially for safety to survive. And so they shared that there was one judge in this study that I think rejected um, or accepted 5%, and there's another judge that accepted 80%. And there really didn't seem to be much of a difference in the cases they were getting. So essentially what they were saying is that what we're seeing is that people are being left to a lottery system. Really, it depends which judge you're getting could determine life and death or a big part of what happens in your life in these type of situations. And that should be alarming. We should be uh, not okay with this type of system. It wouldn't seem fair. And so when we have bias or noise, we are getting essentially the judgments wrong. We're making the wrong decisions, whether we're talking about a system or an individual. And oftentimes getting it wrong could mean injustice, unfairness, life and death type of a thing. So noise is more what is leading to these types of scattered deviations that we might seem might see that aren't all about being in one direction systematically so let's say you run a company if you have a bias for everyone who's predicting how long their projects will take maybe everyone is optimistic which is usually what people see there's that fallacy they think oh we can do this project in six months but if they six they say six months usually it means at least nine months let's say that would be a bias noise would be when different people might give different factors different weight so for example there are some people that if it's a construction project that is using cement they think that's going to take much longer but that same individual might think that if it involves some other material it's underestimated and then there's a different judge or a person in this type of a company who might have a different way of doing things so it's this random type of scattering and error that is oftentimes also harder to measure, which could be one reason why we don't talk about it as much. Now, one of the reasons why I think we don't talk about noise as much as bias is that even for me, before I read this book, a lot of what they describe as noise, I would think is bias. So if you tell me, for example, there is um, a particular judge who is overly harsh, my thought would be that judge has a bias that is, you know, negative or harsh, and that other judge might be lenient, and that's their bias. I wouldn't call it noise. So I think some of it is the unfamiliarity with the terminology or describing it in this way, and I think we might talk about noise at times, but we put it under the umbrella of bias and don't separate it as this book does and explains how they do that. So I, I thought that throughout the book that one of the reasons why we don't talk about noise as much as bias is because of this factor that many people would describe what they call noise as bias. So um, that was one thing to look at. Now, we can also break down noise in different ways. So they call, talk about system noise. And then there's level noise and pattern noise. And I'll explain 
those. So level noise is kind of what I was talking about, this harsh or lenient judge. So you take a set of judges who are, um, let's say, giving um, sentences to different individuals who have been convicted of crimes, and you might see that one of them tends to be harsher than another one. So one is more lenient. And so they've done studies like this, looking at actual court cases and records, but also um, doing uh, experiments or studies where they give judges a bunch of different cases to read, and then they have to give a sentence for those individual cases. So level noise would be that. This judge is much more harsh than that one. Pattern noise is this more, um, it might be different, let's say one judge is more lenient towards older um, convicts. Another judge might be lenient towards people who have done a traffic offense, but very harsh towards people who have done something more criminal. So individual judges might have different ways they interact with different cases. Of course, even it could be men versus women, uh, race. So again, this is where I would think bias, but if it's not part of the whole system, this could be really considered noise. Um, so pattern noise is this more idiosyncratic way that the individual might judge different cases differently than someone else. So essentially what we're seeing is two judges might look at the same case differently, even if they're given the exact same information, which could be something concerning. Now, there's also within pattern noise, there's more stable pattern noise that I was talking about. Let's say some judge always um, is harsher on men versus women or vice versa. That would be their pattern. But within pattern noise, there's also occasion noise. And so occasion noise is how the individual themselves maybe will judge two case, the same case differently depending on the day because of extraneous factors. For example, like their mood. Um, this brings up a study that they do mention in the book, which is quite well known related to this topic. When they were looking at judges making decisions for parole, they found that these judges, when it was in the morning, they were more lenient. As it got close to lunchtime, they were more strict. And then once again, after lunch, they were more lenient again compared to how they were before lunch. And the pattern seemed to demonstrate or suggest that as the judges became more hungry closer to lunch and maybe weren't feeling good, they were less likely to be lenient with the um, individuals who were seeking parole. Even We might even think they probably weren't feeling as good, and also their gut feeling, their gut wasn't feeling very good, so we can understand that they might have made some type of association there. Sometimes these differences are subtle, so it's not that they're being you know, completely lenient in the morning and then before lunch everyone is getting rejected, but even a small percentage would seem unfair if you felt that it's, you would be, uh, it's an unjust system if based on when you were just in the lottery of what time you were being seen might affect whether you were released and given freedom or sent back to jail. That would seem unfair. So now if we notice a whole system like that, that might be a bias, but an individual might feel different things. And there's actually a study showing that, for example, when you look at mood, your sports team, they did one study, I think it was for judges that live close to where the Green Bay Packers football team plays. And on the Monday after a day where they won, the judges were more lenient, whereas a day after they lost, the judges were more harsh. Now, again, these types of 
differences sometimes I was talking to my brother Parham and he said I think he looked at that study the differences are sometimes small it's not some huge difference but nonetheless the fact that there is any difference at all at least brings to mind this notion that as much as we like to think for example judges are completely unbiased because that's their job is to judge in a rational logical way it could turn out that they aren't they are influenced by lots of things that should be completely irrelevant so that would be a case of occasion noise is what we're talking about there if because of the mood they are in and what's funny is right now i'm wearing a lakers shirt the people on instagram live can see that and the lakers lost last night if you're watching this or listening to it live and so uh, maybe that meant today with my clients was i in a worse mood with them i don't think so but it's an interesting thing to consider or i talked about this during the book club today that i've recognized so when i do my Wednesday show, it's 12 to 2 p.m. on Wednesdays, which is actually a time where there's a lot of important soccer games in Europe a lot of times. The Champions League games, very often some of them are on Wednesdays exactly at that time, 12 to 2 p.m. So sometimes I've done my show and during the commercial break, I'll check the scores and I've recognized that it changes my mood or has an effect on my mood. And then when I'm going back on the air to talk to a caller, I want to be mindful of this so that I'm not, you know, now I'm in a bad mood, so I'm going to see things differently or I'm in a good mood, uh, I'll see things differently. Um, but I know that it can have an impact on how we respond to things. And so that's one of the interesting things that this this uh, issue of occasion noise or noise in general makes you think about is we have to remember and they talk about this that when you're making a judgment essentially your mind or really we can say all of you is the machine making the decision right and so if that machine is making the decision it could be affected by lots of things and we have to have that humility to recognize that as much as we'd like to think I'm a rational person, I'm logical, why would I be affected by something so insignificant as this or that? Or even if I'm in a bad mood, it doesn't mean I'm going to make a, a different decision or judge things differently. I can separate these things completely. We have to recognize we can't do that. We are human beings who are subject to different types of biases or, or noise or different types of things that might not be relevant to making our decision or we get affected by things that we might not think would affect us um, but they definitely do so it's just something to be mindful of your mood how are you feeling this is why when people say something like sleep on it the reason why they say that is because your mood might change also we know when you're asleep your unconscious uh, will work on the problem or might think about the situation but it's important to think about something when you are in a different mood than the first time you heard about it, especially if it's an important decision. Um, I've remembered times where if I'm feeling more tired or let's say I have a lot going on and someone says, hey, in like three months, do you want to go on a road trip? When I'm tired, I'm less likely to be up for a road trip, even if it's in three months. Now, if I really think about it, I'll realize in three months I'll be rested. But if I'm not aware that part of the reason why I'm saying no is that I'm right now in this moment very tired or feeling overwhelmed, then I'll think, oh, no, I don't want to go. I don't want to do that thing. But if I were aware of that, I can say, oh, I'm feeling like saying no, but I think it's because I'm tired. That might have an impact on how I'm responding to this. So let me get back to you in a day or two when I may be more rested or can think about it. Um, but let's go to a commercial break. After the break, I'll get more into some of the areas that they get into more details about noise and how it shows up in areas that you might not expect, which I think is quite interesting. So again, 
uh, discussing the book Noise, A Flaw in Human Judgment by Daniel Kahneman, Olivier Siboni, and Cass Sunstein. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing the discussion on the book Noise, A Flaw in Human Judgment by Daniel Kahneman, Olivier Siboni, and Cass Sunstein. So as I mentioned, they talk about noise, this uh the, the scatter that happens randomly. There's bias that's more systematic, but then we see there's a lot of noise where people that are making judgments are using irrelevant information or are being influenced in ways that should be re- should not be relevant to making the decision. And this affects overall outcomes, which can be quite um, surprising, but also, as I mentioned, quite consequential because we're talking about people that are making important decisions. Now, of course, all of us are going to make or have noise in our decisions. And one thing I would recommend is to, if you read a book like this, is always consider not just, okay, these are what these people are doing, these forensic experts, these judges, these uh, insurance adjusters, but how might I, you know, have noise in my decision making? As I mentioned, if I am tired or if I'm in a bad mood, that can affect how I look at things or definitely will affect how I look at things. And we can't make ourselves immune to these types of things, but the awareness can make the impact less. So we might be able to reduce the impact. We won't be able to completely eliminate it, but that reduction itself can be really meaningful. So they get into different areas where we see noise show up. As I mentioned, we see judges can do that, whether it's for asylum or sentencing, things of that nature. Um, but they even you know, show things like in forensic science. So what was surprising to me is in fingerprinting. So I, like me, they talked about in the book, most people think when we do a fingerprint match, it's just pure science. It's very straightforward. It's kind of like a hundred percent type of a thing. But it turns out it's not the case, and they've actually found that sometimes the same uh, fingerprint identifier, the forensic scientist, might not uh, think that both times it's a match, let's say, Um, or different forensic specialists might not make the same conclusion. So that was interesting to me, and it brought up one of the issues. It had several different dimensions, but one of the things you have to be aware of is how much we are impacted by other people's decisions. And so if you find out, for example, that this forensic scientist found that these two fingerprints are a match, you're more likely to think it's a match when you look at it. Whereas if you didn't know and you were more objective, you would not be colored by that bias that this person said. So in this case, we can call it also noise because you're affected by something that should be irrelevant and you're more likely to confirm with them. So um, here they brought up this issue that Having multiple people look at a problem can actually be one of the ways to minimize things like bias and noise when you have multiple people look at them. However, one key distinction is that people must look at these things or evaluate them independently. So if I know that you have seen this and says, say it's a match, I'm going to look at it a different way. And if I know you said it was not a match, that's going to affect me as well. But if we both look at it, or let's say five people look at it without 
knowing what the other people are doing, independently come to an answer and then share those answers or create an aggregate of those answers, we're more likely to do better. And this also echoes this issue or concept of the wisdom of the crowd or wisdom of crowds, which is essentially that when many people make estimates on something, when you average those estimates, you're likely to get close to the real number, which is quite interesting. They've done this in lots of different ways, like counting the number of jelly beans in a jar that's clear so you can see it and everyone gives a guess. When you average them, you actually tend to usually get an answer close if it's many people doing it. But if people see what other people have written down, well, now those those uh, judgments that they see are going to affect their judgment and you no longer get that benefit. So to actually benefit from the wisdom of the crowd, whether we're talking about a big crowd or a small, let's say, group of judges or scientists, what's important is that they work independently. At first, then they can share their answers and then some debate might happen to explain how they got to their decisions. But this is counterintuitive and also counter how we usually work. Very often, uh, probably every one of us has been in a situation like, okay, let's brainstorm. And so what does a brainstorming session look like? The person presents the problem and now everyone starts sharing their ideas out loud. And it seems good. It feels good. It seems like this is how we're going to get to a better place. We're all going to learn from each other. And there's some good in that. But what probably beneficial, be beneficial is for everyone to first write down their ideas, their thoughts, or let's say if they have to give a score or a price or whatever it is, for everyone to come to that decision independently. And then now we share them, even sometimes anonymously they can be shared, and we see the aggregate, and then we go from there. Because what we see in a lot of meetings, and they talk about research that shows this, the first information that's presented in a type of meeting like this heavily biases the way the meeting is going to go. So let's say we have to either be for acquiring this company or against it. If the first two voices are in favor of it, it creates what they call like a cascading effect that now everyone else, even if they were maybe unsure or they don't know what to say, they're kind of like, okay, I'm in agreement too. And this is what makes groups polarize, which is that now it just seems like everyone thinks it's a good idea and all 15 of us think it's a good idea. So of course it's a good idea. But actually, if we had taken a time and allowed everyone to independently think about and share their responses, either anonymously or let's say write them down and now we read them, we would probably see that that consensus is a false sense of consensus. We don't actually all agree. And so this leads to what we can call groupthink. Um, and this is why it's so important that when we're making group decisions, we allow for the space and time to disagree and for people to share their opinions in a way that actually fosters and even uh, encourages disagreement, which people don't like. We generally like, okay, we're making a decision. We all agree. That makes us feel better about it. We have this internal sense of completion. We're all agreeing. Let's move forward. And you've probably been in a meeting where sometimes everyone seems to be agreeing and one person says, uh, you know, I'm not so sure about this. And the feeling many people have, and even sometimes they uh, show that feeling by sighing, say, oh, come on, we were almost there. Why don't you let us go forward? And so what we see is actually in that we were almost there feeling, it's more that we want to come to a judgment, not necessarily the right judgment. We have a good feeling when we've, okay, we've all talked and we came to this conclusion and we all think it's the right thing. Even if everyone doesn't think it's the right thing, it feels good to just get there. And so 
as much as we might not like that person, what they might be doing is something really important, which is making sure we look at the situation from multiple angles. We don't just think we have it all figured out and move forward. So when you're in a group, what you actually want to do in making decisions is encourage uh, disagreement, encourage people to share their ideas, even if it's not popular. And sometimes the best way to do that is have everyone think first and then um, share what they are thinking. This also brings up the concept of psychological safety, which has been proven to be a good aspect of um, groups that are trying to either make decisions or work together. And essentially it boils down to a few components, but one of them is how easy is it for people to disagree? How easy is it for someone to challenge authority? Let's say someone who's above them uh, on the rank. Can they say what they think? And they find that the more successful groups are the ones that have this psychological safety. And I talked about this a few weeks ago that uh, I forgot which book it was now, but psychological safety sounds like this really soft type of a thing. I think it was Social Chemistry by Marissa King. It sounds like this soft type of thing, safety. It sounds like safe spaces that, you know, no one's going to get hurt. But really what it means is we have the safety to disagree. We have the safety to not just go along with what the manager, supervisor, or everyone is saying, we can state our opinion. So actually psychological safety is promoting assertiveness and is promoting people to be clear. It creates and might even embrace conflict. So I think that's why that word psychological safety, which sounds all warm and cuddly, might not really capture the idea that it's actually about, hey, we can talk about things, we can face adversity together and disagree. So, you know, as I mentioned, I wouldn't think fingerprinting is somewhere where we would have to worry about disagreements. They talk about things in medicine where people are uh, affected. Um, Another one that comes up a lot is hiring people and performance reviews. And so it's surprising because most of us, myself included, we would think if you had to hire someone either to work on your team or for your business, you would want to interview them. And it's not to say that interviewing doesn't help at all, but it helps much less than we think because of noise. The things that we usually use unconsciously often to pick someone to work at the company aren't the relevant factors that we should use to have them work at the company. So we get susceptible to things like the halo effect. Let's say the person is good looking or they went to the school you went to or something about them. And now you just see everything else about them in a different light. Like, oh, no, I I like this person. I think they're going to be a good fit. But you might not be aware that what's actually impacting your decision is something irrelevant to their success at the job. So uh, that was to me an interesting point. And there's a lot of research because it's an easier one to do research on looking at interviews, especially unstructured interviews, which is often what is used in hiring and finding that they're very, very low in validity as in the people that are hired are not necessarily good at what they do. So that was quite interesting. And the same goes with performance reviews, which is something that everyone dreads, the people giving the performance reviews, the people receiving them. And unfortunately, the ways they are done tend not to actually um, have a lot of value, which was quite interesting. So, you know, they talk about the different ways that noise impacts different areas of life and how we can combat them. But they do also talk about how One of the ways we can, let's say, overcome these issues with judges having these discrepancies is that we can say, okay, let's use algorithms. And that sounds good. Let's just do algorithms. That'll be easy. 
You won't have to worry about humans making these types of errors. But a few things come up when we, we use algorithms or, or if we do that. And they do talk about that in the book. If we use algorithms, let's say you were going to court and rather than going to trial, they just said, we've computed your score based on this and you're guilty. Most people would feel very dehumanized that they didn't get a chance to discuss their case, to express why they feel that they should, let's say, get a lenient sentence or they were not guilty. So they do talk about the dehumanizing feeling that can happen if we turn all important decisions into just rules or algorithms that um, kind of take away the human element of it. And there probably is, as they also talk about, sometimes where we need some human discretion still figuring out how much can be a challenge. Another issue with algorithms, they do talk about this in a, in a smaller form, but I think it's quite an important issue is when we use algorithms to make decisions, it very often gives people this false sense that all the biases are removed because we think it's an algorithm. It's like a computer, it's AI. We think of like a robot. So how can a robot be biased or racist or sexist or any of these things? It's a robot. It can't do those things or it's AI. But that takes away the understanding of how, and I have a limited understanding of how these types of programs and technologies created. Humans are creating it. Just like how science can be biased, even though we think of the scientific as unbiased because humans are doing the science. Um, AI can be very biased because first, the algorithms, which are like rules, are created by humans. And so they might inject, infect, insert their own bias into the coding or the algorithms that are there. The other aspect is the data that is being used, let's say, for machine learning, that itself can be biased. So if, you know, there was this example that I forgot which company, if it was Microsoft or one of them, they created a Twitter bot that was going to use machine learning basically by being on Twitter. It was going to get exposed to everything that was there and learn how to interact. So it sent its first tweet, which was very like basic, but within, I think it was hours, it became racist and uh, was sexist and saying just horrible things because that's what it was picking up from what it was seeing on Twitter, which is eye-opening, but also a reminder, it had to be shut down within a few hours because it was just getting really bad and not at all what the uh, creators were expecting. They had to shut it down. So, uh, or another example, this comes from uh, Race for Technology by Ruha Benjamin, which actually is a great book on this topic of how technology can actually perpetuate and exacerbate uh, racism, not take it away if we're not careful. But there was a beauty contest. It was going to be the first AI beauty contest. And so people could send in their pictures and the AI was going to pick, I think, different winners for different age categories and men, women, all of that. And um, when they you know, chose the winners, they found that almost all of them were white. And then when they looked at why this might be, they realized that the data that the machines were given or the, the algorithms were given to learn what's beautiful was mostly of white people. And so, of course, when they're learning through that lens that is racist or biased and now trying to judge something else, they're actually going to judge in a biased way. But the really unfortunate part is if we're not careful or to most people, it will seem, well, 
the machines can't be biased if they're saying this, it must be true. But however, that's that's not the case at all. We've made the machines or made the AI, the algorithms biased and racist. So it's just further perpetuating that it actually can even make them worse. But coming back to this book, Noise, um, it was a really good outlining of this phenomenon. As I mentioned to me, usually we would call this bias or I would call it bias, but it does differentiate it and explain it in more detail about noise, how we can counteract it. And as I said, um, thinking about ourselves, what are the things that we might use when we're making a decision that are completely irrelevant, but might affect our judgments? All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So to end the show, I wanted to change gears, talk about something that um, people, you know, and families that I've noticed that I wanted to discuss how, what are the ways we show love? So on um, Saturday on Clubhouse, we had a room that was about actually adults dealing with their parents as they get older, something that's uh, an interesting thing for many people to deal with. How do you deal with the evolution as you get older of what your relationships with your family should be like? But one aspect that I've seen in a lot of families, and I I do work with a lot of Iranian families, so I see this a lot, but in general, you do see this theme of when we're showing love to someone and not recognizing that the way we show our love or how we respond to, to loving our kids or our loved ones might actually hurt or get in the way of our relationship rather than help. So uh, I've talked about something I kind of coined it the pain prevention philosophy of parenting. A lot of parents think that my job is to make sure my kid never feels pain. I just don't want them to hurt at all. And when you have a baby, a newborn, you are really supposed to use that philosophy essentially. You might have seconds where the child is uncomfortable and by the time you help them, but you want to prevent their pain and discomfort. They need that. But as you get older, we have to recognize that even when they're a child, they're still going to cry to tell you they need something. You can't prevent all the pain and it's not even healthy to prevent all the pain that they experience. So I always make this differentiation. We have to differentiate between pain that is towards growth and pain that is towards damage or causing damage. It's not always going to be black and white. And if you feel that your child should never feel any pain, you won't see any difference. You'll see them all the same. And that's where it becomes a problem. So an analogy I like to use is when we look at exercising. If you're exercising, there's a pain that is damage. You are tearing muscles in a really bad way. You're hurting your knees or your back. You're, you know, hurting ligaments, tendons, all sorts of things that are not healthy. There's a pain that's damaged. But we also know that if you want to exercise effectively and get anything out of it, you need to feel a pain or discomfort that's leading towards growth. So if you exercise, but right up until the point where you felt any kind of discomfort, you wouldn't really get much benefit at all from exercising at all. There would be really, there is something to that adage, no pain, no gain. If you don't feel some pain, you're not going to grow. And so similarly, when we look at our children, we have to recognize that if there's no pain, they are not going to grow when it comes to the good type of pain. So a kind of extreme caricature example, but does illustrate this point, is an imagine, let's say a mother who has a child and they say, I don't want my daughter to you know, feel any kind of pain or do anything that's hard. So I'm going to carry her everywhere. 
And so carrying the baby, that's fine. But now the baby is one or two. Like, no, no, no. I don't want my baby to have to feel any pain and maybe fall or they might get tired walking. So I'm going to carry my baby all the time. And now the baby is not even a baby, a little girl, two years old, three years old, still carrying. No, no, you never have to walk. And that mother might think to themselves, I, gosh, I love my kid. Look how much I love my kid. And I'm showing her my love that even it's hurting my back now to carry her everywhere but I'm not going to let her feel any pain or discomfort. And so this continues four years old, five years old, six years old. The mom barely can carry. Even the mom might say, oh, I'm, I'm exercising to be stronger. I'm wearing braces so I can carry my daughter because I love her so much. And what we have to recognize is this mother who is trying to love her daughter so much is hurting her daughter so much from preventing her growth. Because now imagine this daughter is nine, 10 years old she can't even walk for herself. She can't take care of herself because the mother wanted to take all the burden, thinking I'm taking all the, the pain. I don't know. I don't know even if the saying is right when they say, they say, which I think actually has more. It's not just about this, but it's taking the pain uh, of someone because they're trying to take all of that pain. They're not recognizing that some of the pain they're taking away is actually damaging and hurting the growth of their child. And so if we look at what should love mean, we would recognize that this is not a loving thing. You are not helping your child or loving your child the best way. So we have to take another step back. What are you doing when you are parenting a child? Your job is not to create a being that never experiences pain. Your role is to help a child, a being, grow, develop into a strong independent individual that can take care of themselves and feel good by themselves, not needing someone else. So if that's my mindset, we recognize that the mother carrying her baby their whole life is not actually helping their child. They're not doing something loving if we look at what love means. In the book, The Art of Loving, Eric Fromm talks about maternal love it talks about different types of love. And to me, it's really being a parent, but uh, this type of maternal love where he says the paradoxical part of maternal love is that you love something so that it can go away from you. Usually when we love something, we want to be close to it. We try to keep it close to us. We want to be near it. And of course, with your kids, you're going to have that feeling of wanting to be close because you love them. But the paradox is you love your child in such a way that it can go away from you. And that's the very hard part. And that's the very hard part for many parents who don't want their child to ever feel the pain and also don't want their child to ever go away from them. Um, as they say, being a parent can, is a type of thankless job. Not only is it thankless, but it's a very one-sided type of a job. You are bringing a being into this world that you are going to take care of. You are going to nurture and love, and you definitely don't own your child, but you owe your child. You are not the master of your child. You are actually the servant to your child. And when I say the servant, it doesn't mean let your child do whatever they want. Let them walk all over you. Let them um, take advantage of you, be mean to you. Not at all. But you recognize that your whole sense of even having power is to use it to serve your child rather than to have this power to look 
as your master to feel that I am the one in power. So if we recognize that our role is to serve our child to help them grow, we recognize that if we interfere with their growth, we are actually doing something that doesn't love them. We are not loving them. We are doing something unloving. So I I like to think of, going back to that maternal love example, a mother bird with her you know, the hatchling. So she has this nest in the way that, you know, maybe you've seen it in cartoons or in some documentaries, and she's bringing food back for them. She loves them. She's bringing food back for them. But what is she trying to do? Eventually, she wants them to be able to fly away. And so that's what we are trying to do is we love this child. Not so they just go away. I'm not saying when they're very young, they go away from you, but to help them to grow so that they can go away from you. They can fly away from you. And so as a parent, we have to find this very difficult balance of how do I love my child, support them, make them feel like I'm taking care of them, while also encouraging them to do things that grow, not interfering with doing things that grow. And as I mentioned, as I talk about them, it's very easy in an abstract way, but in the real world, it's not so black and white. There's a lot of gray areas of, do I protect and prevent this pain for my child or this discomfort, or do I allow them to face it because it could be good for them? Is this pain damage or is this pain growth? It's not always going to be so clear, and that's what makes it very difficult. But having that mindset is very important because I work with families sometimes, and they'll say, well, you know, oh, I didn't want my, my son or my daughter to get upset, so I didn't do this or I didn't do that. And, and this goes back to what I was saying, that you're the servant to your children, but it doesn't mean you just do whatever they want whenever they want. Because you love them, you don't do that. It, it's not good to just do whatever you want whenever you want. We need some structure and boundaries. So sometimes I'll work with parents like, okay, you know, we're setting this boundary. Let's talk to the child. Let's make this rule. Okay, two hours of video games per day. And that's what the child says. Yeah, two hours is enough. One hour in the afternoon, one hour at night. We'll set timers. And, you know, the child is totally on board. But then we meet the next week. This is kind of um, a caricature too. It's not exactly one specific case for multiple reasons. I wouldn't do that. But the parent comes back and says, okay, yeah, we tried it, but it didn't work. And we say, well, what happened? They say, well, we did one hour, two days, but then the third day he really wanted to play some more. And I told him to stop, but he said no. And he got upset and, you know, I I didn't want him to be upset. So I let him keep playing. And unfortunately, this is hurting the child, not helping the child learn some boundaries and also have some balance in his life. But what we see is driving the parent's behavior is that moment of, I don't want my kid to get upset. My kid is crying. I can't continue on that path. Or my kid is angry. I can't continue on the path that is making my child angry. So when I say be like a servant or recognize you are serving your child, it doesn't mean letting them be the master or letting them completely run the show. The analogy I also like is when you think of a pilot, right? So Really, if we think a pilot, he or she is serving the plane, right? They're flying the plane to get from one destination to another safely. To me, that's an act of service. Yes, they get paid, but they are serving us. Now, at the same time, that doesn't mean because they're serving us, anyone can yell, hey, go this way, go that way. I think you should fly at 18,000 feet, no, 40,000 feet. And the pilot should just listen to everyone else who is on the plane. The pilot uses his or her authority, knowledge, expertise to get everyone there safely. 
they maintain certain boundaries and balance and structure to make sure they get everyone there safely, but they are in essence still serving everyone on the plane. So as parents, you are a pilot. Now, I want to be careful because I know a lot of parents might want to control so much that they might say, yes, I want to be the pilot that controls every place that my kid goes. No, in that same sense, though, you're the pilot that you are guiding your child. You are using your power and authority to serve them, to make sure they are okay. But you also maintain that balance of I'm giving them some space and some freedom, but I have to make sure I'm creating the structure that's going to help them to grow. So we have to be so careful when you see your child upset I understand. I mean, I love children, so I know that it must be a very difficult feeling if you see your child is upset, but you have to think of the bigger picture. And so what I always ask parents to do, and really we do this in our lives, but especially with your kids, is we always have to go back between in the moment and bigger picture. What that means is if your child comes and they're sad, you have to be with them, empathize with them. Oh, you're sad that this happened. You're sad your friends didn't play with you. You're sad Uh, that you can't play this game anymore because we set this rule. But you also have to have the bigger picture to be like, okay, even though my child, let's say, is sad or upset, what's the bigger picture goal that's happening here? My child is sad that they can't play anymore, and I can get that. I can empathize with that in the moment, but I can also know in the bigger picture, it's going to be good for him to know that there are some boundaries, that even though uh, he wants to keep playing, sometimes it makes sense to stop. It's good for us to stop. And so if I know that, I can tolerate that my child is not okay. I will still care. I'll support him through this, but I can tolerate him not being okay with with what is happening now because I know this is going towards his growth. And so this uh, brings up this concept again, and I'll wrap up the show with this. One of the signs of mental health is that you can tolerate your negative feelings. And this is good for us. We have to be able to tolerate negative feelings because sometimes they come up and we don't want to just try to make them disappear by, uh, you know, drugs, alcohol, other unhealthy coping mechanisms or escaping in some way, daydreaming, whatever it might be. We have to be able to tolerate them, one, because those are not healthy, and two, because the feelings tell us something. So it's good for our own mental health if we can tolerate the negative feelings. And the good news is if you actually can tolerate your own feelings, it's easier for you to tolerate the negative feelings of someone else. So if you can't tolerate sadness or anger or any of those feelings in yourself, you won't be able to tolerate your child's sadness or anger either. But if you can tolerate, okay, this is not a good feeling, but we can handle this. Then if your child is upset, You can empathize and be there with them, but you won't feel this crisis that we have to get away from this feeling or that I'm such a bad parent if my child is upset because I think feeling bad is so bad. So a paradox that we might have to accept is that if I love my child, I will actually allow them to sometimes not feel good because I love them, because I know that denying them this experience can actually deny their growth and their development and the values that I actually want for them to learn. So loving your child sometimes means letting your child actually not feel okay. And that actually can be a hard lesson to learn, but one that I hope we can keep in mind. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Have a wonderful night. 